For me, this is my favorite sola. And I know um, as a, you know, a pastor and stuff, we're not allowed to have favorite solas. It's kind of like having a favorite kid. You're really not allowed to do that. But deep down, you guys have one. Come on. So for me, um, this is my favorite sola. And the last couple of weeks, Larry's been preaching on the source of our salvation. It comes from grace alone, which means God has to give it to us. And there's also faith alone, which means we can't do anything to earn it. There's no works involved in this. God gives not only his grace of salvation, but the faith uh, that we exercise to believe the gospel. And all of that is the source. But today what we're actually going to be looking at is... Not the source, but the object of what, it, what saving faith is. Because your faith, no matter what your faith is in, your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. And what I mean by that is no matter how intensely you believe something or how passionate you are about something, all of that stuff does not matter if the object of your faith is weak. For instance... If I wanted to go from here, San Francisco Bay Area, over to uh, the uh, Southeast Asia, across the Pacific Ocean, no matter how passionately I believed and intense I was about my belief that I could do so on a paddleboard with just me, I'm not getting there. And it does not matter how intense and passionate I may be, I'm not getting there. But if I actually placed my faith in something else like the airlines to actually fly me over to Southeast Asia, I actually have a greater likelihood of getting there. And so as you can tell, wherever I place my faith, whatever the object of my faith is, which is going to the Pacific Ocean, me on a paddleboard or me on an airline, that's the goodness or the strength or the quality of my faith is its object. And so today what we're going to be looking at is the, the fourth sola, which is solus Christus, which is Christ alone, the object of our faith. And no matter how intensely you believe something, no matter how much passion you have about something, if the object of your faith is small, your faith will be small. But if the object of your faith is big and the object of your faith is great and the object of your faith is all-encompassing, then your faith will be those things as well. Does that make sense to you all? Because that is important. People are hung up on this concept of faith. I have a weak faith. I have, I have small faith. My faith is wavering. And I'm trying to help people. If your faith is wavering, if your faith is small, if your faith is weak, it's because the object of your faith is those things. And so we need a bigger object. We need a bigger Christ. We need to know him more intently. And we need to know him more fully. And we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as 2 Peter 3.18 tells us. So solus Christus means this. It means that Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners and his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. Solus Christus means Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners and that his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And we need to pray to ask God to help us. Because this is big. So God, would you do exactly that? God, would you pour out your spirit in abundance in such a way that we would have the mind of Christ. That our hearts would be softened to the things we hear. God, would you grant us eyes to behold your glory? Would you grant us ears to hear the gospel? And God, would you grant us a willingness to obey, to believe. And God, we pray 
that what you would do this morning is meet with us in such a powerful way that our joy would be filled. As we behold your glory and we behold all that you've accomplished for us in Christ, would you fill us with awe? And in being filled with awe, would you help us to rejoice in who you are and all that you've done for us? Lord, all over the world there are Christians gathering together to hear the gospel faithfully preached, to hear your word faithfully read, to sing together about all that you've accomplished on our behalf. And so I pray, God, that all of us as brothers and sisters all, all over the world, God, that you would be glorified because of what we're doing. God, we also want to lift up those who are in Florida who are struggling with pain and the grief and the shock of sin and evil. I pray, God, that you would do what only you can do, that you would comfort the downcast and that you would provide healing to those who need it. So God, help us to be faithful people who will pray for those who are weeping and to mourn with those who mourn. So God, would you do these things and even more than we ever thought or imagined for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when we started this whole five solas thing, we talked about theology and naturally people started to, you know, scuffle at that kind of idea and didn't want to really be a part of it. And what ends up happening is I've had a lot of people tell me that the theology that we're talking about is really just a frivolous exercise. You know what frivolous means? Pointless. It's not serious. It doesn't really matter. And to do theology is just to highlight man-made religion and it's just really, it, it has no practical benefit. And yet what's so interesting to me is in my experience, I'm around a lot of people who are asking a lot of really important questions. Questions like this, what does it mean to be human? What, what does it mean to be joyful? How can I be happy? Why do I feel so guilty all the time? What do I do about that guilt? How do I raise my family? How do I quit being a jerk? Things like that. And what's really interesting about all those questions is we, we must realize that each of those questions, whether or not we recognize it, embedded in asking those questions and embedded in answering those questions is theology. What does it mean to be human? You're made in the image of God. Why do I feel guilt? Because you are a sinner. How do I get rid of it? Repent and believe the gospel. You see that? Theology, theology, theology. It's not frivolous. This is application. This is important. This is... It's going to help you come tomorrow. And so I think this is important because people are asking questions. You know, at the time of the Reformation, people are asking questions all the time. They had two really, I get hot-button topics that they really wanted to talk about, namely this. How do sinners get right with God? You see, at the time of the Reformation, everyone knew that they were a sinner. Everyone knew that death is real. The average lifespan was like 27 or something like that. Everyone was dying. And so they, they knew, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is important. How do sinners get right with God? And so there was a lot of answers. The humanist renaissance movement gave a bunch of answers. Some of those answers were what we need to do is go back to Aristotle and Plato, which was recently discovered, and we need to see what they say there. Other people say what we need to do is just express ourselves through artistic achievement. Let's write plays, let's paint, let's do all this kind of stuff. And that will alleviate um, that question and that will kind of solve our issue. At that time, the, the Roman Catholic Church had another answer. How do you get right with God? Here's how. The sacramental theology. Which means if you ever feel guilty, you just need to go and you need to confess and you need to do penance. 
And if that doesn't work, then you need to buy an indulgence. And if that doesn't work, you need to be baptized and all this kind of stuff. And by doing those, you get the answer, the greatest answer at the time. How do sinners get right with God? You get that answer. And then they ask another question. How can we know these things to be true? In the medieval time, the Renaissance movement had this little Latin phrase called ad fontes, which means to the sources. And so how do you know that these answers are true? Go back to Aristotle. Go back uh, to Plato. Go back and read these great writers. For the medieval Catholic church, they said we need to just trust church tradition and authority. And for the reformers, what they said was, no, we need to go to the Bible. You know, today we may not be asking that question, how do sinners get right with God? Because if you suggest somebody's a sinner, they may laugh at you. And the notion that there's a God who may be holy and just and angry with sin, that's laughable. And so we ask a different question today. Here's the question that most of us are asking. And I am not giving us as Christians in this room, I'm not giving us an out in this. We are guilty of this as well. Here's the biggest question I hear. How can God or something else... Make me right with me. Like is there a, like is the force real? Like can the force help me in Star Wars? Um, is, there, is there something I can do to make me right with myself? Because I know, I know something's off here. And so I wonder if, uh, if this thing can make me a, a better, bigger, stronger, faster, greater, skinnier, more smart me. Um, I, I wonder if perhaps a new diet will make me feel better about myself. What about more education? What if I went back to school? What about a new job? Maybe that will change it. What if we moved? What if we just had another baby? Maybe that will kind of fix what's going on inside of me. Or maybe we just go to a different church. I, I like other churches that make me feel good. So maybe we can do that. But if you notice the question, regardless of where people are going to find the answer, it's the same question. How do I get right with myself? Something is wrong. Something is off. And so people are seeking it out of, you know, take a little pill and everything will be solved. Or just go back to school, everything will be solved. Unfortunately, that is not the answer. The answer during the time of the Reformation is the same answer that we need today. Which is this, that God sent Jesus to make you right with yourself. But not only that, but to make you right with God. And not only that, but to make you right with your neighbor but not only that, it's to make you right with all the rest of creation. It's all-encompassing. It's cosmic in its scope, and it infiltrates every nook and cranny of your entire life. God has sent Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. So no self-help scheme, no sacramental system, no education, no amount of money, no new laws, no government, no politician, none of that stuff is ever going to make you right with yourself or you right with God. The only thing that's going to work and the only thing that is proven to work is Jesus Christ alone. So solus Christus means that Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners and his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our sins. You see, the root problem is this, is we don't recognize what the deep issue actually is. At the time of the Reformation, during the Renaissance, because they grew up together, the problem with humanity, why they're asking this question in the first place, is because human beings weren't experiencing their full potential yet, which came the whole idea of humanism. And so the solution is put humans as the center of everything. And once humanity becomes the center of everything, everything else will make sense. Uh-oh. 
So one of the leading advocates of this was a man named Erasmus. Erasmus lived at the time of Martin Luther. They actually debated one another through their writings. They had different perspectives. Erasmus believed that pretty much the whole reason why you're struggling and why you're not okay with yourself and what's wrong with the world is that people are just basically lazy. Here's what Tim Chester and Michael Reeves write in their book, uh, Does the Reformation Still Matter? Erasmus took it that our problem as sinners is basically sloth. We are spiritually sluggish and sleepy and we need, if we are to be righteous, is to just pull ourselves together and put in the proper effort. Erasmus wrote a book called The Manual for the Christian Soldier, which wasn't about warfare or being in the army. It was just about do your duty, Christian. And he recommends that we become more humble, more charitable, more self-controlled, and we need to get control of our lives. So his prescription for your woes and your sin and your everything else was you just need to work harder. And through working harder, you will overcome it. In other words, get your act together. That sounds like good news, right? Woe is me. I'm a wretched sinner. I know that. Here's the solution. You got to get your act together, buddy. That's not good news. Don't you think I've already been trying? You guys get that, right? I mean, you, you recognize I, I've been doing everything I can think of. And, and it's not working. That's right, it's not working because you weren't made to be the center of the universe. Somebody else already is. So... Luther had a different diagnosis. His diagnosis was this, that humanity does not recognize its own peril, the depth of its own sin, how pervasive, deceptive, and all-encompassing that sin really is. And if we finally understood with our minds and felt with our hearts the depravity, how deep and pervasive our sin really is, we would find in the midst of that our solution. And it comes through this relationship between God, the law, and sin. You see, the reformers understood that as 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, that all sin is lawlessness. What we mean by that is sin is basically breaking God's law. But it's more than just that. In Isaiah 59, verse 12 through 13, you have the, the writer Isaiah helping us to understand the relationship between God and his law. He writes, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. You see what he says there. We, we know our transgressions. We know our sins. They're multiplied before you. We know our transgressions. We know our iniquities. We know that we're messed up. Verse 13, we transgress or transgressing and denying the Lord. You see, the reformers were, were re, uh, reintroducing people to the notion that God is not separate from his law. In fact, God's law is a manifestation or a reflection of his person. And so when you look at the law, you, have, you begin to know something about the person of God. And therefore, according to Isaiah 59, if you break the law, you're not just breaking this thing outside of God. What you are doing is denying God himself. And so the horror and the heinousness of sin is not because you simply break this arbitrary law. The heinousness and horror of sin is that you defy the majesty of the lawgiver. 
Think about that. You basically tell God, you're worthless to me. I can't stand you. And you and I all know the difference. If you tell your kid, take out the trash, and they say, I will not. You will be upset with them. But if they come to you and say, I hate you, I don't want to look at you, I can't stand being around you, you're upset with them in a whole different way, are you not? Because they've gone from your commands to your person. That's different. And sin is defying the majesty of the person of who God is. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3.23 that we have, to, we have to recognize the words that he says. He says this, for all have sinned, okay. Everyone has broken God's law. But then he uses this little phrase which I think is so important. And fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. Now we would assume that it would say and fall short of a standard. It's not what that says. What it says is you fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? To put it simply, it's this. The infinite worth of who God is. Just think of it like that. When you think of the glory of God, it's the infinite worth of God and how beautiful that is. And so what Paul says is we all have sinned. We all have defied God. We all fall short of God's glory. In other words, we all look at God and say, you are worthless to me. I don't value you. I don't treasure you. You're nothing to me. We all do that. Whoa. Now, when you put sin in that kind of category, you start feeling. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling it even right now. I can feel that. That's weighty. And the reformer said it's not just that sin is like, oopsie. Because when you see famous athletes or famous people in our culture do horrible things, do you notice how they apologize? I'm sorry for my mistake. What? You raped somebody. A mistake is when you put, like, bleach in your colors. <laughs> but but let's, let's, not, let's not get it twisted, brothers and sisters. You understand this. If somebody raped my daughter, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, that was a mistake. No. They have sinned. Do, do you feel the difference? I hate that when I hear it in churches. Oh, you know, God will forgive you of your mistake. I get it. We all make mistakes, right? You turn left when you should turn right. But you're a wretched sinner. That's different. Feel the weightiness of that. And the reformer said the, the whole reason why it's like that is because of the human heart. The human heart is messed up beyond, beyond what we even thought. The reformers believe that according to scripture, the way to really answer these difficult questions about why I am the way I am and how to get right with myself and how to get right with God is not through self-actualization, which means achieving your full potential, the deeper more pervasive issue, they said, was the wickedness of the human heart. You see, in the early 20th century, a philosopher and psychologist, Abraham Maslow, he taught about self-actualization. And here's what he taught. He taught that self-actualization was the remedy to the woes of humanity. He taught that you could achieve self-actualization through being creative, independent, and spontaneous. So the more that you pursued individualism, the more that you pursued creativity expressed by the arts and the more you were being spontaneous and free, the more you will reach your destiny and experience your true self and live out your full potential. That's garbage. 
just in case anyone's confused whether or not I agree with that. <laughs> Do we not know that the greatest sin is what? Pride? Do we not know that the worst thing that humanity did in the garden was to put themselves as the center of the universe? Everything went undone after that. How is what made everything undone going to be fixed by the very thing that made it undone? That makes no sense. So the, the, the reformers were going, no, no, no. The, 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 the solution to the human problem, which is the human heart, is not found in the human heart. That's the problem. You don't cure cancer by adding more cancer. Does that make sense? You don't break, heal broken bones by breaking other bones. Makes no sense. And you don't cure the human heart by going to the human heart. Why not? Let's read the Bible, shall we? Genesis 6-5. Oh, man. The Lord saw the wickedness of man and that it was great in the earth. And that, and listen to the language, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17:9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. James, the brother of Jesus says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God made me this way. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he himself is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. You know that Disney mantra, follow your heart? Uh-oh. <laughs> if we're teaching people to follow their heart, guess where they're going? Destruction. Are you kidding me? And to make matters even worse, here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says, the mind, the human mind or the desires of the will that is set on the flesh, which means the opposite of the spiritual, is hostile to God, enemies of God. For it does not submit to God's law. Do you see the relationship between the person of God and his law? If you don't do the one, you hate the other. And then he says, indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is sobering. You mean if, if you're not in the, in the spirit, if, if you're not saved, if you don't have Christ in your life, you can't please God? Yes, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. You have no shot at pleasing God. You can't love God. It's not that you won't or you don't. It's that you cannot. Stronger word. So Martin Luther asked the question, thinking about Erasmus and, and probably in our day too, when people are just telling you, try harder, take this pill or read this book and everything will be fixed. Luther asked the question, how shall a work please God if it proceeds from a reluctant and resisting heart? He says, scripture describes man as so curved in on itself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things, he seeks only himself. So what is the solution? Is it more independence? Is it more creativity? Is it more spontaneity? Can you give your heart a good old spiritual pep talk? What is the solution if the heart is desperately wicked and sick? 
I'm glad you asked. The solution is that we need a new heart. We need a new heart. We need new desires. Remember James 1, your desires are what lead you to sin and death. So we need new wants. We need to be able to love and please God. How does that happen? I'm glad you asked that question too. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16. God says, circumcise therefore the foreskin. And you would stop there and you say, "Mm, wait, what? (laughs) Circumcise therefore the foreskin. And this is not really anticipated. The foreskin of your heart. And why do you need a new heart? And then look at the rest of the verse. And be no longer stubborn. Or in other words, you're stubborn. You need to quit being stubborn. Okay, so if somebody's stubborn, how do you make them not stubborn anymore? Tell them to quit being stubborn? No. That makes them more stubborn, does it not? Married people. (laughs) What we need is a new heart. Where are we going to get a new heart from? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. God will do it. And the heart of your offspring, God will do that. I don't know about you, but when I see God will circumcise the heart of your offspring, that encourages me as a parent. I'm going to do the best I can with my kids, but ultimately it's it's in God's hands. So that, look at the purpose statement. The whole reason why we need to circumcise heart is so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. In other words, if you don't have a new heart, you don't get circumcised in your heart, you have no shot at loving and serving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you won't live. Romans 2, this is where Paul picks it up. He says, no one is a Jew. No one is a part of the people of God who is, one merely, uh, who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, someone who's a part of God's people, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. And look at this. By the spirit. So now we have the New Testament. The new covenant is beginning to teach us how we get a new heart. God's going to do it. And when he does it, he's going to do it by his spirit. Because that's how God promised it, according to Ezekiel 11. God says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And he promises even more fully in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And look at this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what what God promises is, look, I recognize that your heart is wicked and you only think about evil stuff. I get that. But I'm not going to sit idly back and just watch you just wallow in your own filth and do nothing. I'm going to do something. And what God promises is I'm coming. And when I come, I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to give you uh, for the heart of stone. I'm going to rip it out. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So no longer are you hard-hearted towards me, but you're going to be tender and soft towards me. And when you get that new, soft, tender heart, you're going to be able to love me and serve me. And I'm going to give you the spirit so that you will be able to walk according to my commands, and you will obey me. Man, those are big, rich promises. And Jesus picks it up in John chapter 7. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What in the world is living water? Verse 39, Jesus said this about the spirit. 
You see, when the Spirit circumcises your heart, you're going to be filled with the Spirit and out of the heart will no longer come evil and wickedness and theft and sexual morality. What will come out of the heart is the Spirit. That is a great truth. That is a great promise. So much so that when Peter was meeting with the church leaders in Acts 15, he talked about the same thing. Verse 7, he said, you know what? These Gentiles, they heard the word of the gospel and they believed. Verse 8, that God gave them the Holy Spirit. And then verse 3, and God has cleansed their hearts by faith. That's the connection. When you hear the gospel, God cleanses your heart by the spirit. And the heart cleansing is that new heart transplant, which enables you to love and serve God in ways that you could not before. No wonder why Paul prays this beautiful prayer. For this reason, Paul says in Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, so that according to the riches of his glory, the riches of his infinite worth, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ will never dwell in the heart of those who don't have the spirit. So God promised a new covenant. He would circumcise the human heart. We would become soft and tender towards him. God would do this through the spirit and through the spirit cause us to walk in obedience to him. This is how Martin Luther summarized it. To fulfill the law, however, is to do its works with pleasure and with love. This pleasure and love for the law is put into our hearts by the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not given except in, with, and by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, moreover, comes only through God's word or gospel which preaches Christ alone for salvation. That's beautiful right there. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. God, by his grace, has to make us alive. And the only way he makes us alive is by giving us faith when we hear the gospel. And faith also is a gift of God by his grace. And the faith that we have has to be in Christ alone and no other thing. But the question for me anyways is like how in the world do I get the spirit? How do I get in on this? I want the spirit. I want a new heart. I'm glad you asked that question as well. You guys are very perceptive this morning. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 11. Paul writes, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, to praise his infinite worth. In him you also, when you heard, here it is, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. Here's the important part, you guys. Nobody is going to ever receive the Spirit unless they hear the gospel and believe. Does that make sense to you? I hope you understand the gravity of that. And I hope you understand that churches who gather together and they are infatuated with the Spirit and yet there is no gospel there. You have to go, huh? How's that work? Scripture says, gospel, then spirit. Whoa. But I love this verse because it says that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I love this because it it suggests for us Christians that there is a predestiny. There is a destiny that God has for us. My question is, what is it? I would love to know that because I see that paraded everywhere in Christian, you know, like 
sermons on social media and stuff. Destiny, destiny, destiny. People are like, yeah. But I stop and go, oh, what, what are you talking about? Destined for what? For the better self? Is that really what God has for us? Is just to offer our best life now? Because that's nowhere in Scripture. So what is our destiny? I'm glad you asked that too. Man, this is going really well. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, and you cannot love God apart from the Spirit. So those who love God because they have the Spirit and the circumcised heart, that all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now what is his purpose? What is his destiny for us? And it's verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, and check this out, conformed to the image of his son. The destiny that God has for you is not for you to become the better you, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, skinnier, healthier, whatever. That is not God's destiny for you. God's destiny for you is to be better than you are, to be like Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect man. So what that means is, is as the spirit comes in us and as God begins to play out his destiny in us, we begin to think like Jesus. We begin to feel like Jesus. We begin to talk like Jesus. We begin to serve like Jesus. And remember, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How is it that we can put our lives as the center of the universe and pretend as though we're being like Jesus? When Jesus himself came into creation and said, no, not my will. I'm laying, it, I'm laying this life down for others. You guys get that concept? Whew, that's good. So how do we experience our destiny? If we're supposed to be like Jesus, how do we experience that? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul in verses 7 through 9 talks about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he says this in uh, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, the old covenant, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory, it had worth... That the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which, has, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? In other words, isn't the new covenant more glorious than the old covenant? Isn't the new covenant more precious and more valuable than the old covenant? And he says this, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Because the ministry of the Spirit is to impute righteousness, Christ's righteousness to you. That is the ministry of the Spirit. Literally what it says. But then look at this in verse 14. But their minds, the people in the old covenant, their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ, Christ alone, is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, I've seen preachers walk around the stage holding their Bible up, freedom, like the little William Wallace in Braveheart or something like that. But the question is this, freedom from what? And freedom to what? What, what is our freedom? You can't just say words. Words mean something. 
So what, what does Paul mean by freedom? Verse 18, when we have the veil lifted from our hearts and we have freedom from the spirit and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. That is what freedom is, brothers and sisters, where previously you would not see God as infinitely valuable. When the spirit comes upon you, boom, veil is gone. You behold God. He's amazing. Now, here's the thing. If, if you don't have the spirit, you'll never find God amazing. God will be annoying to you. He's intrusive. He's like a mean old grandpa. Hey, you kids, get off my lawn. <laughs> but when the veil is lifted from your hearts, you with freedom will behold the glory of God. You will see the infinite worth of God and you will treasure him. Oh, and then look what happens. And then you will be transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You want cultural transformation? It's gonna come by beholding the glory of God. You want transformation in your own life? It's gonna come from beholding the glory of God. You want transformation for your kids? You need to hold out the glory of God. You want transformation in our church? We gotta behold the glory of God. I as a preacher need to lay out the glory of God and say, see your God, behold him. Isn't he marvelous? I don't even know where I'm at. <laughs> yes. One of the things I keep thinking about is this, is, is, is we, we just, we're so satisfied with silly things. And, and people, I, I know this, people want me to preach silly things. They want me to preach, preach silly, simple things. And I'm saying, no, 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 because no, nobody's transformed by silly things. Like how to be better this and better. No, no, no. You're transformed by beholding the majesty of God. And so I'm asking, I'm praying that God would stir in your hearts such an affection for him that it will outweigh and surpass and just completely engulf all of those other pleasures of this world. And you will find Christ more glorious and more satisfying and more of a treasure than anything else. And that's what we need to pray for. Because according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it talks about unbelievers. It says this, that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. You see, Satan is actively blinding people from seeing what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The good news of the infinite worth of Jesus. Satan is blinding people in our culture from seeing the infinite worth of Jesus and finding him delightful. Verse 6. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, remember Genesis 1? He has shown in our hearts a great light to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But God has not sat idly back. God is active, and what he's doing is he's penetrating the dark, hard hearts of human, of human beings, and he's penetrating their hearts with the light of the gospel, with the light of the good news. And as we behold that light, and as we see the good news, the glad news of Jesus, then and only then do we begin to treasure God. That's what God is up to, but it only comes through the preaching of the gospel. The only way we can possibly value God as being infinitely worthy is when we treasure the gospel. That's it. Okay, how do you treasure the gospel? I, I love summarizing the gospel in, simply, in simple terms, and, and this will be an easy way. 
the wrath of God has been satisfied. I'm going to start with the wrath of God. You see, the gospel is always two-pronged. It has bad news, but it always ends up with good news. And here's the bad news first. We are by nature, by nature, not by because of what we do, but by nature, objects of God's wrath. This is not fun to listen to. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Remember that from James 1? And the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature you are an object of God's holy wrath. Which means God is just and God is holy and he cannot stand sin. And wherever there is sin and there are sinners, they will be punished with the infinite fury of God's wrath. Not because you've broken an arbitrary law, but because you defied his majesty and glory. It's different. You know what? In the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America in 2010, they decided they didn't like the wrath of God. So they decided to take out the great hymn in Christ alone. Because it was offensive. One of the lines they wanted to change was this. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They found that offensive and wanted to change the lyrics to till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Because nobody likes talking about this stuff. And the false notion that if you eliminate the wrath of God, it will magnify the love of God is bogus. And if we're going to be Christians, what's the first five letters of Christian? Christ. So let's ask him what he has to say about God's wrath. Start there. Good idea. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Remember this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? I didn't come to condemn you. You were already condemned before I got here. Because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And look at verse 36. This is ominous. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Man, I don't know about you, but if, if Jesus is telling the truth... And I think he is because God rose him from the dead and God doesn't raise liars from the dead. Then I think every human being who's ever conceived is an object of God's wrath. And unless they repent, Jesus says, they too will likewise perish. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel the weightiness of that. And I'm starting to feel as a preacher, why would I waste my time talking about trivialities? I got to get people to gospel. No transformation without it. And the wrath of God will remain on you without it. Romans 2 verse 5, Paul writes, but because of your hard and an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And why I keep harping on self-improvement, self-actualization, self-help, here's why. Romans 2 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
I cannot sit here with a clear conscience and tell people what you really need to do is put yourself first and, every, and God will be there to supply you as though he's kind of the cosmic bellhop to accomplish all that you want. No, no, no. You become what you behold. If you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, you will become like Jesus. But if you in your imagination only behold a better, bigger, stronger, faster, healthier, smarter, more creative you, then that's all you get. That's all you get. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus said. Are, are you guys feeling this? If I left the sermon off right now, you guys would hate me and you would leave angry. And guess what? I wouldn't have preached the gospel. That ain't good news. But we're about to get to it. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica about just how marvelous their faith is becoming. And he says this, um, that you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And, and that you are waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, for God has not destined us, there's the destined word, he's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we who are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You see, the wrath of God was fully and finally poured out on Jesus, and that's one of my favorite things to talk about. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was praying there and he said this, my father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Remember when Jesus was sitting there sweating drops of blood and, and just praying that God would, would not have him go to the cross. And he said, take this cup from me. You ever ask the question, what in the world is the cup? Do you have like a Nalgene with him? Like what, what's going on? And according to Jeremiah 25, the cup is an image of God's wrath. And so what happens at Jesus is the cup isn't removed. God doesn't save him from the cross, but instead Jesus goes willfully to the cross. And according to Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And at the cross, the son of God, God come in the flesh, hung there naked and rejected and defiled and abused. And there he was, majesty on high, come in the flesh. And the whole wrath of God was emptied as though it was a cup poured out on him and hit from the bottom. Not a drop is left. All of the wrath of God is fully, finally poured out on Jesus and not on you. And when Paul writes Romans 5, 8 through 9, it says this, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated God, Jesus died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, more shall, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And you have to understand this, that eliminating the wrath of God does not magnify the love of God. But instead, when you come to understand that you were by nature an object of God's wrath, but in the midst of that, God loved you so much that he satisfied his own wrath, not on you, but on somebody else as a substitute, there you will see the love of God magnified. I was once an object of God's wrath. I was once in darkness. I was once blind. But now I'm a child of God. Now I see. Now I'm in the light. That is amazing. Colossians 2, if go quickly. And you who were dead in your trespasses in this uncircumcision of your flesh, your heart, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing Jesus to the cross. No more debt. It has been paid. And not paid partially. Our salvation is not like a layaway thing where you come and you make deposits over time. Our salvation was purchased finally and fully at the cross and through an empty tomb. It is finished, Jesus said. And I love this, what Andrew Bonar says. In a 19th century sermon, he says this, the cup of God's wrath has been satisfied on the whole in the one person, Jesus. And he presents the empty cup to sinners from all of the world. He sends it around the world through the preaching of the gospel to all of mankind and beckons sinners, come, take it. And offer it to the Father as satisfaction for your sins. Come, fellow sinners, grasp the empty cup, hold it up to God, plead it to the Almighty. You are now acquitted. Don't be anxious anymore. You are saved and blessed if you take the empty cup as your very own. However cold your heart, however dull your feelings, however slight your sorrow for sin, if you take this empty cup, all is accomplished. All is finished. You are finally free. Do not think that you need something else for the anguish of your soul. You have it all in the person of Jesus. Plead the empty cup. Whoa. Brothers and sisters, it comes down to this. If sin is not much of a problem, then Christ need not be much of a savior. And if, if that's true, then we need not have much grace. We got this. You don't got this. But Jesus has you. We've been destined to be like Jesus. His sacrifice is final and full. Your debt has been paid. Jesus is risen. All is forgiven. I'm out of time. So, Father, help us, I pray. Because full payment has been made. Sinners have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. We don't need to do good works to secure your favor. All we need to do is plead the cup of your wrath emptied upon Jesus on our behalf. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The wrath of God has been satisfied. God, you were once hostile towards us and we to you. But because of Jesus, we have been reconciled. And we can be made right with you. We can be made right with ourselves. We can be made right with other people. We can be made right with the universe as a whole. All because of Jesus. So God, help us to pray and help us to live and help us to sing these truths for your glory and for our joy.